I was 17 months old when my father, Francis, who was 25 years old, and my mother, Maureen, who was 23, went out for a few drinks on Valentine's night. I have no memory whatsoever of my beautiful parents, other than the pain, loss and complete and utter devastation. I grew up in the shadow of this disaster. I lived with my father's parents. I'm an only child and the stardust has left me on my own in this world. Everything I know about my parents is from other people's stories. My aunts and other members of my family told me endless stories about my parents, Maureen and Francis. My father, Francis, was the eldest of 12 children. The one thing that everyone tells me when they remember Francis is that he was very, very good looking. In those days, films full of Italian looking stars like John Travolta, George Hamilton and Tom Selleck, who had dark, good looks and plenty of hair like Francis. Francis, my dad, was very popular with girls and women, not only because of his looks, but also because of his easy patter. He loved talking and found it very easy to talk to anyone. He could chat his way into and out of almost any situation. He loved people. He liked to talk and was not afraid of hard work. Maureen, my mother, grew up in Cabra. She was one of seven children. She was a confident child until the age of 15 when she was seriously hurt, knocked down by a car on Gardner Street. Her pelvis was badly damaged and her self-confidence and her school life took a hit. She left school after the intercert exam to work in a butcher shop in Dorset Street in North Inner City where she wrapped up people's orders and worked on the till. Maureen was pretty, petite and slender with rosy cheeks and fashionable blonde perm and blue eyes. All the boys liked her. They fell in love very quickly and got married when Francis was 19 and Maureen was 17. In their wedding photo, they almost looked like kids playing grown-ups. All Maureen ever wanted was to be a mother, raising a happy family. After the sadness of several miscarriages, I was born. My family would tell me that I was the light of my parents' lives and that they were totally smitten with their baby girl. My dad said to my mum that they'd hardly been out since the wedding and even less since I was born. He said it was Valentine's weekend and they should take time for themselves for once. My mum Maureen was not sure at all about going out. She hated leaving me alone and hated the thought of leaving me with a babysitter especially because I was only getting over a cough. My dad persuaded her by explaining he had an invitation to go to a disco called The Stardust. Francis, my dad, managed to get out of the inferno and into the cold night air, which must have hurt his scorched lungs. He started running around looking for Maureen in huddled groups of young people in a state of shock outside this place. None of them knew who Maureen was and just shook their heads. Francis realised she was still inside. He filled his lungs with air and ran back into the fire to get her. Neither Francis or Maureen ever came home again. <laughs> After losing her daughter, Maureen's mother, Elizabeth, was broken. 
she had a sudden heart attack four weeks later and died. She was only 54 years old. She really did die of a broken heart. After my grandparents died, there were times I felt I'm done, I can't go on. I have a wound that has never healed in my life and it never will. It's too hard to cope with. I have sometimes allowed myself to feel angry at my dad for going back into the fire and leaving me. There's every reason to assume that if Maureen and Francis hadn't gone out on that rare night, they would have been a happy, productive couple with a loving baby filled with children Maureen longed for. I wonder whether they realised their lives were about to end and their baby girl was at home. Did they try to comfort one another before it was too late? I will never know. I am hopeful that after all these years they were killed, the stardust will finally tell me what happened to my lovely parents. That was Lisa Lawler, remembering her parents, who'd both died in the stardust disaster. It was one of the pen portraits read out during the first four weeks of the ongoing stardust inquests. Family members of the 48 victims were each given the opportunity to speak about their loved ones and to talk about the impact the tragedy has had on their lives. It's been a long time coming today, 42 years campaigning, protesting. 48 died that, that night. We don't have full closure on of exactly what happened. We want the truth to come out, how exactly the fire started, where it started, why they couldn't get out. Why so the Stardust Inquests has entered a new phase in proceedings. It has begun to hear evidence and will continue to do so over the coming weeks. So we'll be hearing from doormen, we'll be hearing from barmen, we'll be hearing um, potentially from Eamon Butterley, who was the manager on the, on the night. And then we will go to families and patrons, emergency responders, so that will be Dublin Fire Brigade, the Gardaí, ambulance workers, people in the control room, I suppose, the time they took calls. With the inquests expected to last until the end of the year, what can we expect to hear from the evidence hearings? And will the victims' families finally get the answers they've been searching for? Yes, this is the start of the end. So hopefully, I mean, it will go on, we think, well, about six months. But we're ready, um, we've been ready ever since the fire to, to see this through and we see it through to the end. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, after 42 years the stardust inquests begin to reveal the truth. Lisa, how difficult was that? Very, very personal pen portrait of your parents. How difficult was that to write and then deliver in public at the inquests? Yeah, delivering something like that in public because it's my personal grief. It's what I cry about alone and it's 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 nobody else's you know to deliver that in a room full of people and especially you know jury and the coroner and everyone like that was there knows the pain but nobody knows inside and that's the raw pain nobody ever knows they don't see that side of me because according to me and everyone else I'm okay you know, I remember my grandmother would always say, you're always going to be OK. So she kind of nearly convinced me. But to deliver that again is very hard hitting because it's two young, vibrant lives with a baby. 
that were just gone. That was it. Gone. And I suppose I grew up never having identity. It's always Stardust Baby. That's Lisa from the Stardust, Stardust Lisa. You know, you can call it what you want, but even the word Stardust is just synonymous mm. with me. You know? Well, you wrote a memoir. You called it Stardust Baby. You were, after all, the only child orphaned yeah. in the horrific disaster. And I was struck by a line in it. You say that... For most of the people I met, I seemed to be a walking, living, breathing symbol of tragedy and not an ordinary little girl. What was that like growing up? You know, I was like this little doll. Everyone wanted to hold me or hold me hand or sit me on their knee and tell me how much I was like Maureen and I was like Francis. And I could never cry or show me feelings because Nan had cried then. She'd be broken. So I could never cry. So in the end, I ended up being around her, but not looking at her. Mm. Because if I faced her face to face, whether she saw me father in me, I don't know. Like I was always just a symbol of this. Even people I meet on holiday, anywhere. Oh, you're the baby. They still probably think I'm a baby. I'm 43 now, you know. But um, Stardust Baby will never leave me. It's my name. Yeah. And you said in, in your portrait of your parents there that everything you know about your parents, you learned from other people. Yeah. The hardest thing that I suppose I could tell you is that I've never saw them walking. And I mean, something so simple. I've never saw, if you see the way people use their hands and... Their voices, I've never heard them speaking. Well, I don't remember. I've never saw them walking. I've never heard them talking. And I've never smelled them, you know. Them cries must have been completely and utterly devastating when I was small. I don't think anyone could comfort me at all, you know. And of course, Um, these were really grieving people who were looking after this toddler. Yeah, I mean... The pain of that. The pain... But you see, with that came its own problems. With me, I'm so anxious. I'm a really anxious person. Anxiety is anticipation of the worst. And the worst did happen to me. So I'm riddled in fear and anxiety. And that's, it would be me if that was two words I would put me, you know. And how did you find the inquest setting, you know, and, and the coroner? How did, how did you find all that? Because these are days that you've waited a long, long, long time for. I won't lie. It's very daunting. And it's, it, it's very hard to look around and realise that it has taken this long, you know. It's and all, you're the embodiment of that. Yeah, because, I of mean, course, you were a baby. So now look at you now. Yeah, I mean, look, look at me now. And I mean, when I go in and I realise, I just keep in my head that this is mum and dad. Mum and dad are here. Like, I, now, they're not there in person, but there is no doubt that them 48 victims are around us in that room. I don't care what anyone says. And this time, this is it. Now, the inquests are going to go on. It's May now. The thinking is that they're going to go on with some breaks, obviously, until the end of the year. Will you Will you go? Will you, is that? Oh, yeah, I will be there. Um, I will be there. I most definitely will. And as hard as it will be to listen and to hear 
and to sit in a room where you know that there's no love, this is going to be information that's given out just like that and that you have to sit there and listen, but I know. The cold they'll facts, be, you want to hear the cold hard facts. facts. But they'll be around me. They always are. I'll be back after this short break with Kitty Holland, who's been attending the inquests in Dublin each day. Kitty, this is sort of a a question that I I do know could take up the entire podcast, but you know, if if you could in some way condense it, it would be great because like the tragedy occurred in 1981 or 2023. Why did it take so long for these inquests to take place? Yeah, well, there was a tribunal of inquiry later that year in um, and reported in 1982 under Justice Ronan Keane. And that came back with a finding that it was possibly arson, which the families obviously absolutely rejected. And um, it's, you know, it's a finding that is repeated in other situations like Hillsborough, where the fans were blamed for the, the crush at the football stadium in Bloody Sunday in Derry, where they were blamed for having shot at the British Army. So, it, I mean, that's a, co- a common trope. And obviously the families rejected that. So there was a long campaign, particularly by the Keegan family, to overturn that. And they eventually, in 2008, a long time later, there was a, um, a then a barrister, Paul Coffey, he's now a judge, appointed to do a review of the evidence. He came back and said that he didn't think there was a need for a new inquiry, but they should remove the finding of arson. So that happened on the dull record. They, they said it wasn't arson. They still felt they were being fobbed off in terms of getting at the truth of what really happened that night. Another review was um, done in 2017 by a retired Judge McCartan. He came back and said there was no need for another review. So the game changer really was the involvement of Dara Macken and Phoenix Law in Northern Ireland. And Lynn Boylan, Dublin MEP at the time, put the family in touch with Dara Macken. And he, I suppose, brought his experience from Northern Ireland the um, and the legacy deaths there and a lot of contentious deaths um, in Northern Ireland, as we know, in contested circumstances. And his experience of the coronial process, the, the inquests at getting at the truth is what he has brought to this process. And he explains it. He says the reviews that happened before, the McCartan review and the Coffee review, they looked at the evidence that was there before them. Uh, whereas what an inquest does is says, pushing all that aside and we're going to go and get our own information. We're going to start from scratch and we are going to go back and look at the whole thing again. And the families wrote to the then Attorney General Seamus Wolfe and put that argument and said to vindicate these young people's right to life under the European Convention of Human Rights, the only way to do that is an inquest. Uh-huh. And he then in 2019 agreed with that argument and also said that, you know, the magnitude of what happened, the ongoing kind of suspicion and rumour and all that kind of thing, that the public also has a right to know exactly what happened. So on those grounds, he granted these fresh inquests in 2019 and they are now underway. So the coroner, Dr Cullinan, she said that last week, she said that the inquests were about to enter a very different stage of proceedings. What did she mean? The pen portraits, while crucial to the process, they're not evidence. They are memories. They are bringing the lives of the young people to the centre of the proceedings, but they're not evidence. So that's over now. And now we have moved to evidence. That began last week 
what we are going to come to next week on, from June the 7th is witnesses. And they are going to be heard in different tranches. The first set of witnesses will be staff on the night. And I suppose the arrangements for the night and we'll look at how so many... really detailed. Really detailed. We'll look at... So we'll be hearing from doormen. We'll be hearing from barmen. We'll be hearing um, potentially from Eamon Butterley, who was the manager on the, on the night. He was present on the night about how the place was being run. We will then hear in the next tranche, which will probably be possibly in the autumn, the first batch could last this first phase. And then we will go to families and patrons and then we go to emergency responders. So that will be Dublin Fire Brigade, the Gardaí, ambulance workers, people in the control room, I suppose, the time they took calls, which will all be crucial to establishing when the fire started and where it was first seen. And then we will hear from expert witnesses in pathology and in fire. Now, the coroner also said last week that the stardust, and I'll quote her here, she said, it had left an indelible mark on the suburb of Artain and the surrounding areas. When you were there for the last four weeks, did you get a sense of that in the very formal setting of an inquest? Yeah, you know, the pen portraits really painted, I suppose they painted a time of a Dublin long gone in many ways. You know, I'm 51, so I, I remember the time, if not the actual incident of the Stardust. And I certainly remember the references to things like um, some of the young people working in places like Roach's stores and Cleary's and B&I ferries. They talked about not having phones in the house, not having landlines of um, and of, of a lot of the children as they were, so many of them children, leaving school after their intercert as it was, the junior cert now and going and getting work. And that was very common in the 80s, particularly in working class families. And the other thing that was, you got a sense was of how young the area was, how many children and young people there were in the area. And I was speaking to one of the families outside and she was saying that their family had come from Gardner Street, where they had lived in one room, still one room families in the in the early 1970s, to a brand new house in Coolock. And the Keegan family talked about how they had lived, um, their parents, in one room with other family in Ballyfermish with three children and how when their daughter Martina was born, they told the doctors in the Coombe about the living conditions. And this was reported to Dublin Corporation and it wouldn't happen now, but a few weeks later they were allocated a three-bedroom house in Coolock. And how they were so delighted with themselves to move into this brand new house with a garden and lots of space for all the children. And you just got a sense of how it was a young community, how a lot of the children who, um, young people who went to Stardust that night would have been sort of the first who'd come of age. They had jobs, they had, a, you know, a few bob in their pockets, they had their friends. They were just so optimistic and hardworking and ready for life. And how this just, just devastated, how Stardust just devastated all that. One woman, Alison, Croker spoke about her sister's funeral and um, she said that she went she went to the funeral. She was only 12 at the time and in, in one coffin was a young person who had taught her football and another mm. coffin was someone she knew from Irish dancing. Another was her sister. And she said you couldn't get on a bus in Artain, Kulak at the time without seeing someone who you knew had either lost someone in Stardust. Or, so it's just this deep sadness just fell over the whole community. 
And I suppose the fact that it has taken 42 years for them to get to a process where they really have faith now in feeling we're going to get some truth at last and we're going to be treated with respect and get some honesty, that that has compounded the experience of the grief. So the inquest is, and again, I'll, I'll quote the coroner, she said, it's a fact finding exercise and not to apportion guilt or to exonerate any person or body. She said that the jury's verdicts in each of these 48 inquests should, however, reflect the manner in which the deaths occurred. You know, the families, I'm assuming, that they feel they want, some of them want justice for this, but surely that's not kind of part of this process. Yeah, and like, I would never presume to speak for the families, but having spoken to them, what I gather when you ask them what you want from this process. Some do say justice, but I haven't probed on what they mean by justice, but a lot say they just want answers. And I I think that answers and justice are sort of intertwined because they haven't had the truth. They certainly feel they haven't had the truth, that they have been fobbed off, that they were dismissed at the time, that they were badly treated at the time. I mean, they weren't even allowed to choose their undertakers. They weren't allowed to choose what day their funeral would be on or the church. They were told, "Don't you won't get to see your deceased. Now, the deceased may have been extremely disfigured and everything, but they were, they were not even given the choice. So from the get-go, they were dismissed. They were told what would be happening. They would be told what they would be getting. They were told to go away and forget about it, essentially. So I think to be finally feeling that they are going to get some truth, that they will get to look whoever it is potentially in the eye, whether that's the state or individual organisations or people and say, now we know. I get the impression that for them, for an awful lot of them, that will be justice. Now, some may, if there's findings, want to go on and get other justice in in other courts. But I get the impression for an awful lot of them that just getting the respect of being told the truth is enormous for them. It's cliche, but I want closure. I want to be able to, so to speak, close the book. I don't know, and although I'm going on second, third and fourth hand information, I want to know from the experts. I want people to tell me. I want it in writing. I want to know what happened to my parents. I need to know. I can't, there's no rest. There's no peace inside my body at the moment. It's all upside down I need to know and when I do know I know then that they can rest and I can rest That's it for today For more Irish Times journalism, including Kitty Holland's ongoing coverage of the Stardust inquests, and to read each of the pen portraits of the 48 victims, visit irishtimes.com. I'm Bernice Harrison, and this episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.